Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. A simple glance at history is enough to demonstrate that our notion of what is genuinely scientific changes rather significantly over time. Alchemy, which no less a scientific luminary as Isaac Newton devoted considerable time and attention to, has long morphed into chemistry. While despite its regular presence in a surprisingly large number of daily papers, few will admit these days to the notion that astrology is a legitimate science. Examining the intricate boundary between what we consider to be science and so-called pseudoscience turns out then to be considerably less straightforward than you might at first believe, which is why Princeton University historian of science Michael Gordon's engaging and thoughtful reflections on the matter prompted by the intriguing specific case of Emanuel Velikovsky, are very much worth listening to. So, uh, history of chemistry has grown because there's a chemical heritage foundation in Philadelphia, but the, around 20 years ago, a kind of revolution took place in the history of alchemy, where people, the, so the old tradition was, it's all bunk. That's the 19th century uh, reading of it. Right. In part because there are people who are like, this is a mystical engagement with the divine, a communing with the divine. That's what these texts are. They're sort of religious mm-hmm. texts. Then came Jung, who was very interested in alchemy and uh, thinks that something's going on, but it's not actually experimentation. It's some psychological process they're working through. Huh. And that, then That's not surprising coming from Jung. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sort of fits the entire <laughs> picture. And then there's um, these two individuals, mostly, um, William Newman, who was then at Harvard, but now is at uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and Lawrence Principe, who's at Johns Hopkins, both started trying to, well, reading these things, saying, okay, so what they say is principle of sulfur, da-da-da. When they say principle of sulfur, they may not mean sulfur. They might mean something else. So let's try doing the experiments and seeing whether anything actually happens. And it turns out something does. Uh, that very often, if you read the ingredients correctly, you get the result they say you're going to get. So something's happening. So it's a way of uh, revising our understanding of what's going on with these people. The quest for gold is still there, but it's only one of many things people do. Much of what they do is make pharmaceuticals. They do the stages on the way to making gold. Well, this whole idea of transmutation, right? right? It's a chemical process. So this was the early form of transmutation, right? right? And, And then what ends up happening is people like Boyle, late 17th century, start doing they start saying, well, look, uh, those people are the bad people, the alchemists, and we are the chemists. We're different people. Most people use chemistry or alchemy interchangeably before then, and it starts to rigidify late 17th, especially early 18th century. People don't do different stuff. They just call what they're doing chemistry, and they call what those other people are doing alchemy, and you start to get a separation. So it's a propaganda war. It's a propaganda war. It's, it's the same thing as pseudoscience. It's like some, something gets fringed, as the other in order to legitimize yourself. So you get rid of the kooky people. It's what um, psychiatry has done with Freud. It's like, well, that, that's not, we do cognitive stuff now. We do, right. we, it's, all, it's all chemicals. Um, and you need to have something else to push off from. But the uh, Boyle actually did alchemy stuff. Like he did tons of alchemical experiments, as did Newton. Newton spent yeah, much yeah, yeah, of his sure. time. But, but, but people talk about that like it's a goofy part of their life as opposed to 
actually kind of normal. Well, it's, so. it's interesting, this distillation of historical figures into stuff we talk about and stuff we don't yeah. talk about. I mean, you, you can go back to the Greeks and it's Aristotle's a genius when you talk to a philosopher, but yeah. Aristotle is some loser when yeah. you talk to a physicist, yeah. right? Or, and, and as you move closer and closer to, to current day, you see this perhaps less frequently because we still cling on to some of their beliefs. But yeah. if you go back four centuries or something like but that. But you still have, I mean, you, the classic case is Einstein where you see this happening, where they're like genius, except then he's kind of wrong about quantum theory, but wrong for good reasons. And then he's really wrong about unified field theory. Uh, like, and, and so we talk about the early stuff. The, the, I think of this as a, there's a classic uh, position in the literature for the 10 people who care about this. The young Einstein, old Einstein problem, where young Einstein has this brilliant intuitive genius something happens with quantum theory and the old Einstein's kind of crotchety and backward looking and no longer is revolutionary. And except for EPR, which is, which is probably e the most cited paper. Except for EPR. And EPR is one of the things where it's like, he's interesting even though he's wrong, yeah. is the way it's put. <laughs> um, and especially after Bell's theorem gets sort of resuscitated exactly. recently, EPR is definitely wrong, but wrong for interesting reasons. Um, good to think with. Bohr's response to it is not nearly as sophisticated as... Um, Bell's theorem. And then the um, old Einstein, though, is the Einstein everybody thinks of. The Einstein with the crazy hair, the yeah. sort of the political activist, that guy. So his, his, he's not famous at all when he's doing all that physics. And when he's famous, he's not doing the thing that you think he's doing. And that map is very odd. And so all the biographies of him have this problem where they try to get this, that, those four different guys, I suppose, into one story. Right. And it doesn't work. Um, and this is just a we happen to know a lot about Einstein. We know more about Einstein than pretty much anybody else because we have a lot of documentation on him. And so it's, you can get really lost in the weeds of trying to piece together something that works. But you'd think Actually, that Darwin we know more about. You'd think um, that would make us a little bit more tolerant, but it seems to have gone the other way. I yeah. Mean, but and, and, uh, Peter Gelsen wrote this nice article about the history of string theory with exactly this in mind, where people cite the late Einstein, depending whether you're pro or anti-string theory, in exactly opposite ways. Like, like Einstein was onto something, there's a problem, we have to get gravity integrated in with the other forces, and it was right. so visionary, and it's much like in relativity when he was younger, when he did that gravity thing, and he generalized from electromagnetic oh, So they've problem. adopted him. So, so Einstein is, is, the, is the, the primeval string theorist. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then for the critics, you're like, yeah, when he was a unified, he's this loopy guy walking around without socks, he's rambling, he doesn't even pay attention to the strong force. Like, that's your model for Unified. So, um, so he, he, you can you can pick your Einstein. Uh, there are a couple of people who are so polymorphic that you can pick whatever you want out of them. Oppenheimer is another one. Oppenheimer says X and not X about every topic. And so, if you want to, you can just draw a line through that's right. consistent, or you can try and deal with somebody who embraced contradictions all the time. Yeah. It's easier for most people to do the former. Probably. Exactly, yeah. uh, and I, you understand why that's a compelling thing to do. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit specifically about um, Emmanuel Velikovsky. And okay. let me set it up a little bit because we're, uh, we're going to be talking primarily but not exclusively in a, in a true free-flowing conversational format <laughs> yes. about, about uh, science and pseudoscience and what, whether that distinction makes any sense and what we can say about it and what the ramifications are and where it comes from. And in your book, you chose Emmanuel Velikovsky as the test case, as the poster boy, as it were, of maybe poster boy is not the right word, so correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, as a, as a good exemplar, because I'm guessing, because there are very interesting and concrete aspects of his case, which point out historically and sociologically relevant things that we should yeah. be aware of in terms of this issue with science and pseudoscience. Um, but for most people, 
as you point out in your book, uh, living today, they, they wouldn't even have any sense of who Emmanuel Velikovsky is anymore. So let me ask you to just start off giving a, a, a brief précis, which is a redundant expression in and of itself, <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of who this guy is and why you chose him, and then we can talk a little bit more about the book. Right, so one of the reasons why I chose him is precisely because he was once a household name and now is absolutely not. And it's the yeah. fact that the story has an end, which I like. But let me start with who he is. He, uh, he was born in 1895 in the town of Vitebsk, which is now in Belarus, but was then part of the Russian Empire. It's the same town Mark Chagall's from. Uh, Jewish family, when he's five years old, the entire family moved to Moscow. He eventually gets a medical degree and the revolution hits. His family uh, gets out and emigrates to Berlin for a few years and then settles in Palestine. His father buys some apartments in Tel Aviv and he, Emmanuel, the son, who's one of three children, he's the youngest, he's the only one who leaves um, with the parents, manages those estates. He married a, a violin student while he was in Berlin. She moves down. They have two daughters. At this point, this guy is just an ordinary, uninteresting guy. Slightly more interesting is after his mother dies, he decided that even though he's a medical doctor and he doesn't really practice, he would like to retrain as a psychoanalyst. So he goes to Vienna for a few years, around 34, and studies, uh, learns quite a bit, and then comes back to Tel Aviv. And at this point, he's still uninteresting. But uh, in 1938, uh, he walks by a bookstore and sees a book by Freud. Being a psychoanalyst, he's interested in what Freud had to say. It's called, uh, in English translation, Moses and Monotheism. Uh, Velikovsky read the German in the original. Um, and then he reads it and he's incensed. Um, the argument of this book, uh, which is better known than Velikovsky's, but not much, uh, I imagine, among the general public, <laughs> is that um, Moses is not a Hebrew at all. He's an Egyptian and was a renegade priest within the monotheistic cult of the Pharaoh Akhenaten. Uh, that religion is, after Akhenaten's death, uh, suppressed very strongly, and Moses takes this religion and sells it to the slave population, the Hebrews. They eventually leave with uh, this new monotheistic religion with Moses and take it out. Uh, the god that the sun god that they get gets fused with a Midianite volcano deity associated with um, Mount Sinai called Jehovah, and that's how the religion emerges. That's bad enough for Velikovsky, who is uh, certainly raised in a very observant household and is strongly connected to various religious strands of Zionism as well as secular Zionist strands. But then the worst part is. Freud claims that you can do the same thing you do with dreams to the Bible. That is, what's going on in the Bible is a lot of metaphors and allusions that are like the dream work. They're like the images we get in dreams. And if you know how to read them right, you can decode the underlying story that it's trying to suppress. And what that is, is the murder of Moses by the Hebrews who are sick of his puritanical regulations. This is, this is, horrifying to Velikovsky, and he decides he's going to write a refutation of it. He's a psychoanalyst, he can do this. He takes a sabbatical with his family, and they all leave on a steamer to go to New York, where he can work at a better library. Uh, he arrives in August 1939, which is some of the best timing imaginable, um, settles down in the Upper, East Side, Upper West Side, and then uh, goes to New York Public Library. And while he's there, he does a lot of research. I don't want to go into the complete details of this, um, but he comes to a belief that he finds a text, a translation of an Egyptian text that he thinks is the same thing as Exodus, just from the Egyptian side. Uh, and he says, whoa, maybe the events actually happened. 
but they're not miraculous? What if they're natural disasters? What if I can read all of these myths and see if they have homologies between them? Not just analogies, but actual homologies. Uh, that is, stuff that has a common cause. So he reads Chinese myths, Mayan myths, but mostly Middle Eastern myths, and finds these constant same things. Earthquakes, rocks from the heavens, stuff like that. Fire from the sky, lightning, um, massive flooding. And he says, oh, there was a natural disaster. Uh, I can intuit it from global myth, and then I can reverse engineer, using ironically the same thing Freud did with Moses and monotheism, uh, what the global catastrophe was. So he figures it out. He publishes it in a book in 1950 called Worlds in Collision, which uh, appears from Macmillan Press, which was the leading scientific press in the US at the time. And it rockets to the top of the bestseller lists. It, uh, it really makes quite a splash. Everybody's discussing it. It's the book of the year. And then a, about eight weeks into its publication run, the press decides that they're going to give it away that they're gonna get rid of the book and give it to Doubleday, which is a competitor of theirs, with no cost. Just transfer Velikovsky out of the this way. This is Macmillan, right? This Macmillan. is Macmillan. Right. Macmillan gives it off to Doubleday. Uh, and that, so then the backstory starts to come out. And the backstory is scientists had written in to the press and said, a few scientists, not that many, uh, about eight to 12, saying, we are offended that you, our press, a scientific press, published this book, which is, as they said, claptrap, claptrap, fictional science, um, science fiction, baloney. There's all sorts of terms like this that get floated around. Did Where they use the word pseudoscience at the time? Or? Uh, the term pseudoscience gets used uh, at various points, usually not in these letters. They get used in the uh, reviews of the book that end up coming out. So the reviews that came out starting in April 1950 when it appeared are all extremely, the ones from scientists are extremely negative. And some of them use the word pseudoscience or pseudoastronomy, uh, et cetera, in it. The private ones use some of that language, but most of what they say is, we no longer think you're a reliable press. And so therefore, we're, gonna, we're thinking about boycotting you. What that means is not buying their books, not assigning their books to undergraduates, which is 70% of Macmillan's sales, uh, not submitting works for you, and not refereeing. And one of the most articulate of these letters comes in response to an editor who says, I want the referee report that you owe me. And he says, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not going to give it to you because you guys published this book. Um, and so George Brett, who's the director of the press, says, you know, better not to do this. So he um, deacquisitions the book is the term I like to use for it. When that comes out, it becomes this publishing scandal. Uh, and Velikovsky and many people who enjoyed the book start saying, well, we don't know whether the book is right. Velikovsky thinks it is. But um, this is like Galileo saying the truth about the heavens and the orthodoxy doesn't want to hear it. And he has been repressed by uh, this homogeneous establishment that doesn't like the fact that he's an outsider giving a new perspective on how things are going on. That makes the book even more popular. And for uh, a couple of months, it's still at the top of the bestseller lists. And then it kind of vanishes for a bit. I'm going to say what the book's about in a second. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's dormant for most of the 50s, and then in the 60s, it gets picked up again, first by a series of acolytes who find it through various nooks and crannies and come to um, admire the man. In 1952, Velikovsky moved from New York. He doesn't go back to what is now the state of Israel. He decides to settle in Princeton, New Jersey, not far from where we're sitting right now. Um, and 
just continue to write more books, many of which are consistent with Worlds in Collision, the first book. And by the mid-60s, the counterculture picks up on it, and it becomes this huge sensation. It's not unconnected to it coming out in paperback, but it becomes to speak. This guy is now in his upper 70s, comes to speak for this young generation's desire to break out of an old established orthodoxy. Very, very popular throughout the 70s, and then the man dies in 1979, and the whole thing kind of crumbles within four or five years, and it's almost unheard of today. So um, why am I interested in writing about this? Part of it has to do with the content. Part of it has to do with him. Let me say the bit about him. First, I like the fact that it has a beginning and an end. Velikovsky's life up until about when he's 50 is completely ordinary, regular life. And then he gets obsessed with this idea, writes this book, starting in 1945, really starts writing the book, and then has this whole second life. And then it has an end that's quite distinct. And it's rare that you can see a very public fringe doctrine from beginning to end coherently. Other fringe doctrines, uh, creationism, parapsychology, things like that have much messier beginnings sure. and still continue. Um, the uh, other part is that he kept all of his stuff in his house, his fan mail, his hate mail, his drafts, and so on, and his widow and daughters gave it to Princeton University Library, and they're all sitting here. And it's this incredibly well-documented case of a view of a fringe doctrine from the inside how he thought of it, how it was built up. And also from the outside, because you were talking that he, co he collected oh, everything. Oh, absolutely. So, he so. collected everything. He even collected third party. Like Fans of his would write letters to other people, not saying I'm a supporter of Velikovsky, and got their views and then gave him the, the letter back. Right. So he collected views from between third parties who aren't supporters of his. He collects all of the reviews of his book. He collects reviews of books that are like his book, but not like his it's enormously comprehensive archive. And so you can actually see this. Usually this, this stuff gets treated like junk. And it gets thrown out by the kids after the person has died. Uh, you know, that's Uncle Steve. He had this theory about geocentrism. Let's throw it up. And so, and so this is kind of gold for a historian. You can sure. actually see this. The second reason, so one is the documents. The second is I'm a historian of science and I was interested in the content. Um, so I mentioned that he can correlate the myths, he thinks. So what does he think happened? He thinks that about 1500 BC, which is around the time of the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt, according to his dating of it, uh, a comet was ejected from the surface of Jupiter. Um, the idea that comets can be ejected from planets is uh, a live one in astrophysics at the time. Uh, sometime before then, it, it was ejected out. And then around 1500 BC, it comes hurtling towards Earth. It gets trapped in gravitational and, uh, importantly for him, electromagnetic for, uh, sort of union with the Earth. And there's lightning bolts coming from this comet to Earth, and Earth is rumbling. The Earth's axis tilts. It slows down a little bit. Uh, the crust fractures. All sorts of bad things happen. It doesn't get within uh, the limit whereby... Um, whereby it will crack up because of tidal pressures. But it, it's out there, and it's very, very visible. It's the most dominant thing in the sky. Uh, and so after about 50 years of this, it somehow breaks off and settles down into a regular orbit around the sun and becomes Venus, our closest planetary neighbor, second planet from the sun. Uh, and that the birth of Venus is such that humanity witnessed it. And didn't just witness it, but witnessed it when they had writing. So they put down the story in lots of texts, but it was so traumatic and 
many, much of the population of the world died, incredibly devastating, that they encoded it as myth, which was the way that they could understand it. As miracles, as divine intervention, as something like that. But what it is is actually just a natural phenomenon of the rearrangement of the solar system. It also happens to displace, Venus happens to displace Mars, and Mars threatens Earth in a second bout that happens around 800 BC, and then Mars settles down in its current orbit around, around the world, uh, around uh, the Sun. And so we have this new theory of the solar system. Instead of being derived from statistical mechanics or astronomical observations, it's derived from what he considers eyewitness testimony. People who were actually there and saw it um, give us this information, but the information is, is spotty and encoded, and you need to learn how to decode it. So he uses some ancient astronomical data from the Babylonians. He uses a lot of mythological data. And then he uses a lot of historical data about king lists in Egypt and so on to get the timing to work out right. But you have these two massive catastrophes. I thought this idea was fascinating. It's an amazing um, fusion of an obsession with ancient history, world religions, the cosmos. And it um, touches the physical sciences very deeply. Most of these fringe doctrines that one hears about have to do with biology or geology. But very few have to do with astronomy. And uh, aside from astrology, which is a separate, much more fraught case. Um, and so this is something that was publicly available, very widely discussed, extremely exciting to a lot of different people. And so um, I just wanted to figure out how we got there and also why the scientific community reacted so strongly so quickly. Like, th there are many cases in the history of science, like phrenology, that's the bumps on your head determining your personality or mesmerism that start out as plausible. Right. And then there's a debate, and then it gets kicked out. This never, there was no debate. This got kicked out instantly, and yet still lived on. It didn't just go away, vanish. Um, it continued to always live in this zone where people consistently called it pseudoscientific. And uh, what made it go away was not scientists battling against it, whether in 1950 or in the 1970s, but just uh, the leader of the movement dies and the kind of energy peters out. So before we get to um, what made it die away or what, or, or looking at it dying yeah. away, let's, let's talk about those reactions. Before we do, I'm just going to ask you a question. I'm hearing a truck that's just idling like crazy. Are those windows actually closed? Is there? There's nothing we can do. Are you picking up anything on your? No. That's fine. All right. Okay. Um, so you you itemize um, a couple of different responses, um, and I I'd like to talk about them, and then I'd like to see if we might be able to generalize them or look okay. at them a little bit carefully. So one is, um, and, and let me just back up a little bit to say those responses. To, to this particular case, which seemed to me to be very specific, but might be able to be generalized. Mm -hmm. so, so you look, uh, in 1948, you highlight this Lysenko yes. uh, case as to why this, as, as a potential interpretation of why the scientists reacted so vociferously, mm -hmm. so, uh, so angrily and so quickly. And as you pointed out, it wasn't necessarily quite as homogeneous as we might look mm -hmm. now going back because uh, there was talk of a letter writing campaign that yes. was huge and maybe it wasn't actually so huge. But, but you, you point to this Lysenko case in 1948 as being, uh, uh, it was 48, right? Yeah, it's 48. Uh, as being a key precursor in terms of scientific awareness as to mm -hmm. what should be done about 
crazy guys mm -hmm. uh, promoting crazy Cranks, theories. Crackpots, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about that, and then I'll ask you more questions. Uh, actually, this is this is part of the This is a, a question that's part of the historical puzzle that got me to this in the first place. Um, I was thinking about someone said, "Would you be interested in writing a book on pseudoscience?" And I said, "Well, it's a very problematic category. I don't, I'm not sure. Let me look at it." And I started picking up a few cases and doing some reading. And Velikovsky was going to be one of those cases. And I was talking with a student in my office. And I said, like, what are you reading? I'm like, I'm reading all this stuff about French stuff. And I started talking about them. And every single one was in 1950, in 1950, in 1951, in 1950. It, like, all of these cases hmm. emerged then. And the reason why that's puzzling is because weird theories appear constantly, many times a day, everywhere. The vast majority of them sink without a trace. No one says anything. What's interesting about Velikovsky is that it didn't sink without a trace. It could have been ignored. It could have gotten two negative reviews and already been like, oh, it's a flash in the pan. It'll go away. Right. And that's the, scientists are busy people. They, don't, they have lots of things to do, and they can't investigate ev or debunk every strange theory that comes their and way. And there's also the, the danger that it might backfire. You don't want to give added press exactly. to something and so forth. Exactly. Like, so, you, so escalating it to the point of public campaigns against something is a, a very bold move, and you would only do it if you're willing to invest the time and the energy against all those risks to do that. So the question is, why around 1950 do you see this happening in multiple different areas? And uh, Velikovsky being the biggest, but not the only one. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics is also published in 1950 and uh, gets some similar press in the same way at that time from the psychological community. Um, so why? I looked back and it seemed to me that the clear moment where you see this, because in the early 20th century, there's very little of this kind of stuff. There's the Scopes trial, there's a couple of, about creationism, there's a couple of different moments, but they don't have this kind of scale. Right. So it's got something to do with the conjuncture, this moment of the late 40s. And there's two parts to that. Lysenko's part two. Part one is in 1945, something's happened to physics. Physics used to be a relatively small field, a couple thousand people worldwide, worldwide meaning North America, Europe, and a couple in South America and East Asia. Not 2,000 people, 3,000 tops, working on this kind of stuff. And after World War II, they're the single best-funded, most visible uh, community of scientists the world has ever seen. That's enormous amount of funding, power, scrutiny. And this is a moment when there's a tremendous amount of scrutiny by the House on American Activities Committee and eventually by Senator McCarthy about these egghead scientists who can make very serious weapons, and the Soviets also have some of these people. So uh, it's a moment of tremendous anxiety for this particular community, and the anxiety is crucial. And the microscope is really, really the microscope is, 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 yeah. is them. Right. If you look at uh, who gets hauled before the House on American Activities Committee, a lot of that is actors and union leaders and so on. But among scientists, it's disproportionately, overwhelmingly. Not just physicists, theoretical physicists. Right. There's one experimentalist who's Frank Oppenheimer, the brother of J. Robert. That's it. Hmm. Uh, that's, that, that's striking that among the physicists who are the overwhelming set, the theoretical physicists are dominant right. because they're seen to be having something to do with the bomb. So uh, the, the microscope is there and the, the stakes are quite high. You can be blacklisted, you can be fired. This is David sure. Bowman's up in Sao Paulo. And, yeah. uh, um, it's, uh, it's not a good scene. So there's a lot of anxiety about this. And then uh, something happens in the Soviet Union, and this is part two, that makes things come to a head in mid-1948, and the reverberations of that are, I think, what trigger the reaction to Velikovsky in 1950. So 
in the Soviet Union, there was a man named Trofim Denisovich Lysenko, who, uh, so Lysenko, Lysenko, however you want to say it, he's uh, an agronomist. Starting in the late 20s, he did a bunch of experiments, uh, very small scale experiments with very equivocal results, but he comes to believe that particulate inheritance in the form of genes, which is then the dominant theory, but not the overwhelming dominant theory, um, isn't true. And that instead, some kind of modified inheritance of acquired characteristics is how heredity actually happens. Because right. this is before DNA, we should specify. It's before DNA. DNA is right. 53. Right. The discovery of the structure of DNA is 53. Right. But it is the case that most people who think about heredity are are, genetici are geneticists of some form, right. but they sometimes allow for some what's called soft heredity, which is some impact of the environment on uh, on inheritance. He argues that he can transform species, Lysenko that is, uh, from one kind of species to another by putting shocks on the seeds. That is, taking a seed and rubbing it with ice will make it more tolerant for cold. He calls this vernalization, and some of these techniques have been around since the 1860s, and they're very common uh, agronomical techniques, and plant physiologists were interested in them. But right. he thinks it has heredity implications. Right. Um, in the 30s, he links it up with uh, state Marxist ideology, and Stalin gets interested in this as an alternative to the geneticists. This is the same moment when the Nazis are using genetics for very different kinds of political claims, and so having an alternative seems like a good idea. Not just the Nazis, there are Americans who are doing the same eugenic arguments as well, quite prominently. And uh, so... Lysenko has this moment where he struggles with the genetics establishment, but there's a struggle going on. After World War II, the struggle continues. It kind of goes on hiatus during the war. And in 48, it looks like there's going to be some discussion either way about how this is going to go, and there's a meeting of the Lenin All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences, where Lysenko is now the chair or president of. He's got that in the late 30s. And he gives a speech with all of his usual arguments, inheritance of acquired characteristics, Soviet Darwinism, genes are pseudoscientific and bourgeois. This is a bourgeois pseudoscience. And his last lines are, the Central Committee has read this report and approved it, which means Stalin has approved it. We know better than that. We actually know that Stalin line edited the report mm -hmm. and in fact uh, took out some of the more inflammatory stuff. So Stalin toned it down. Uh, but the report's very toned up uh, as you look at it. And that means it's illegal to practice genetics in the Soviet Union. It stays that way until 65. There's some genetics being done as radiation biology under the protection of nuclear physicists, but uh, it's, it almost wipes out the field. And this is a, a global scandal. Uh, it becomes propagated as a new Soviet science. The Eastern Bloc in China starts to adopt aspects of it after 49 when the PRC is established. Um, and it becomes this way of dividing the biological world into two camps. Communist parties in England and France have to take stances on this particular thing. And in the US, it gets a very particular reaction from geneticists uh, who say, well, earlier we had not liked Lysenko. We thought he was a problematic guy, but we thought we could argue with him as this is a debate among scientists. Politics should stay out of it, especially anti-Soviet claims, right. which might make the state back Lysenko more, right. we should make it all about science. After 48, they say the state has spoken. This is now no longer science. It's outside the realm of science. So it's not in the spectrum of excellent science, okay science, good science, bad science, really bad science. They thought at first it was really bad science. Now they think it's off the grid. It's pseudoscience. And that term gets bandied around much more after 48. And you talked about these two guys in particular, uh, of course well, there were probably more, but you talked about these two guys in yeah. particular who, uh, whose names start with a D, D and I can't remember yeah. whether. Uh, so, <laughs> but, yeah. But it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But their, their attitude was very much as, as obviously mm -hmm. as you've described, which is we, 
they were worried that it would become a political football and that it would just be you know, thrown in the McCarthyist winds yeah. so that all of a sudden it would, it would be used uh, as a as a source of leverage to damn the Soviet Union right. holus bolus, and they said, no, no, let's, let's try to uh, abstract away, let's, let's soft pedal this, let's not condemn it, and in fact, let's bring it into the public scientific discourse. So one of these D guys actually translated yeah. this book, as you were yeah. saying. This is Theodosius Dobzhansky, who, uh, he's most famous for having written Genetics and the Origin of Species, which is the first book in 37 that actually tries to unify the Mendelian line and the Darwinian line. Right. And one of the, he's one of the more important evolutionary theorists of the 20th century. But he's also Russian-born, Ukrainian-born, we would say now, uh, and uh, translated Lysenko into English in a very calm way, precisely so they could have a scientific discussion about right. it and then reject it. Right. And all of these guys, the other guy, Leslie Clarence Dunn, they're both at Columbia. The reason I can track this is they write letters to each other all the time, and you're like, they're in the same department, why are they doing this? Uh, it's because Dobzhansky is traveling around collecting samples in Brazil, and so there's this, this discussion is happening with Brazil letters uh, mm. happening over time. One of the wonderful things about this period is people wrote mail, and the mail came twice a day. So you can see evolution over, uh, of thoughts over a very specific period of time. So Dunn in particular is involved in U.S.-Soviet scientific cooperation, an attempt to try and uh, avert a Cold War by, by keeping the intellectuals talking to each other. And in fact, when the scientists start coming out saying the pseudoscience arguments about 48 or so, um, it does get picked up by uh, the anti-communists and the right wing as evidence that the Soviet Union is in a rational place that can't do science and only democratic societies can have science. Uh, the part of the reason why that politics stuff matters is that when you look at who the leaders or the most prominent people against Velikovsky are, they're all left liberal people. They're all people who are not communists by any means, but they are liberal and uh, not anti-Soviet. They're moderately pro-Soviet in terms of how uh, foreign policy should work. Right. And so th this is in a way they, they, want to, they, they, have, they have to condemn Lysenko but they want to say, well, we're not just condemning Lysenko, we're condemning all of these kinds of bad sciences. And look, here's one by a guy who's uh, citing the Bible and lots of religious texts. He's kind of like a right-wing guy. And we can, we can attack him, too, on the same grounds. Right. And so, it, first of all, they come to believe that crackpots can be very, very dangerous. Exactly. And second, they also think they can shore up their liberal bona fides by saying we condemned Lysenko, but we can also condemn this guy. Exactly. So there are two, two real things going on. So there's no reason for anyone not to promptly and vociferously attack yeah. Velikovsky. Right. Because there are political reasons to have a balance, and, and there are tactical reasons because, well, we tried the, let's bring it into the public scientific consciousness right. and have a debate, and that didn't work. Yeah. Well, look, look what happened. And, and, and I, I would expect if you had a time machine and went back if, and asked people in 52, 53 what they thought about this, they would have said, oh, we, we, shouldn't have, we shouldn't have condemned it the way we did because it made it much, 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 it made it very popular. It's possible it would have been popular as it was, but they didn't just help make it more popular because everybody loves a scandal and this is the success to scandal of the year. Uh, it also gave a narrative to the story and the narrative is persecution. It could have been a debate about many things. It could have been a debate about crossing fields and what happens when someone from psychology moves right. into this. It could have been about science and religion, which is, I think, what people thought it was going to be about when they started. But instead, it becomes about Galileo. It becomes this, not actual Galileo, but this story of modern Galileo's day, repression. Modern-day Galileo. Yeah, yeah. The, the new Galileo affair, the, and it becomes called the Velikovsky affair, precisely for the same reason. 
And that's part of the appeal at the moment, and it's part of what the fuel that keeps the Velikovsky um, industry, if you want to call that this, it's a cottage industry, literally, in his house, uh, going is this, this narrative, and it draws many of the counterculture into it later. Right. But I think this, you bring up a couple of, uh, of points that I'd like to try to generalize mm-hmm. later on. But when we're talking about the different fields and the different, uh, the different areas, namely psychology, and mm-hmm. what's a psychologist actually doing, mm-hmm. doing this, um, and the narrative which is being used, there are a couple of, there's one overwhelming irony, it seems to me, uh, maybe there are many overwhelming ironies, but anyway, there's one particular irony <laughs> which has struck me. That, that you mentioned. So th- the first one is that, as you said, the genesis of this book, as it were, the genesis was uh, to try to rebut Freud. Yeah. So this is a, a psychoanalyst trying to rebut Freud, who, uh, a psychoanalyst who was incensed by this Moses and monotheism mm-hmm. book, and he's trying to um, rebut Freud. And in so doing, he develops this theory uh, of uh, this mixture of history and this mixture of science mm-hmm looking, as you say, as taking the, the historical religious document seriously as witness testimony, mm-hmm. uh, smoking guns for scientific uh, evidence. But then he, uh, as you describe, he describes the persecution that he is receiving in Freudian terms himself. Absolutely. He says this is because the, in the common history of humanity we've suffered this incredible shock that we are trying to suppress and my job or what I'm doing now is, is making people come to terms with this. These are my words and I'm not a psychoanalyst nor do I pretend yeah. to be one. But, and the process of coming to terms with this, this tumultuous earth-shaking cataclysm literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively, that we've had to suffer as humans on this planet that is encoded in our collective dream unconscious is so incredibly overwhelmingly difficult for us that the immediate reaction will be suppression and then persecution of the messenger. And that's what I'm suffering right now. Yeah, it's it's, it's Freudian all the way through. And and the way that the the neurosis that we have was first Aristotelianism, an attempt to try and provide an ordered universe. And science as a whole is obsessed with the idea that the universe is ordered. And the reason why we feel compelled to do that is because the universe was disordered at one point, and it almost killed us. Right. And so the uniformitarian ideas, the idea that the, the same laws of physics that work now have always been working, the solar system has basically always been this way, is a manifestation of a neurosis. So he's, he, writes, he wants to write a book refuting Freud, but that's not because he's opposed to Freudianism. Like, right. he is psychoanalytic all the way through. And the two sort of red lo- threads that go throughout his entire life are a particular interpretation of Zionism and Freudianism uh, of some form or other. So the book he's originally going to write about Freud is going to have three parts. The first part is going to be a reanalysis of Freud's dreams. Uh, so Freud famously made his reputation a uh, big splash with the book The Interpretation of Dreams in 1899-1900. Uh, in it, there are six dreams that Freud says are his, and Freud gives interpretations of them. And Velikovsky says those interpretations are wrong. I, uh, I can reinterpret them better, and they're all about a self-hating Jewish uh, in, uh, individual worrying about conversion. Uh, the second part is going to be about um, Oedipus, the central myth for Freud. And Velikovsky had this theory that Oedipus and Akhenaten, who is another one of, Veliko- of Freud's uh, avatars, uh, are the same person. That is, the myths... So you can use the history to help reinterpret the Oedipus myth, and you can use the Oedipus myths to help reinterpret the history of Egypt. And why, for example, is it Thebes, which happens to be a city in Egypt and in Greece? Why is it a sphinx, of all things, that speaks to Oedipus? So 
the book is going to be called Freud and its Heroes, I should say, and this is going to be part two. That book eventually, that segment gets published as Oedipus and Akhenaten in 1960. It's a totally amazing book. It's totally worth reading. Uh, it, it gives this. It, it does the same thing where he, just like Velikovsky, takes the myths to interpret the science and the science to interpret the myths. And there's a risk of circularity at every single point. Like which one is stable and which one are you? Which hmm. is the dependent variable is never quite clear. Hmm. Um, and he does that part. The third part's going to be about Moses, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. And it's researching the Moses part that gets him to the Worlds and Collision book. Um, in the process, I should say, he also has to reinterpret all of ancient history because to get the Egyptian text that he thinks is Exodus with Exodus together, he has to erase eight centuries of Egyptian history. So he wants to say that Egyptian, Egyptian kings often have several names. So he wants to say some of these people who, have, who you think are two pharaohs are actually two names same of guy. the same pharaoh. Yeah. And so you can collapse them. It's, it's, it's sort of analogous to saying something like um, Barbarossa and Winston Churchill are kind of the same. Uh, and that the same events that happen over and over again uh, that look similar, that you could say World War I looks a lot like the Thirty Years' War, and that's because they're the same war. They're just displaced by several centuries. Those are my analogies, not at all Velikovsky's. Uh, but, but people who criticize him say, make arguments like this. Right. Uh, so he never gives up the Freudian explanation, the idea of amnesia, of repression. It's, it, it saturates his understanding of the world very, very deeply. And so it explains, so he has a way of explaining the reaction to him. So in, in the end, he comes to believe that there, sh there had to have been a Velikovsky affair. Because if he were right that this event happened, it should be so traumatic that it should still produce this reaction. So the very hostility of the scientific community becomes evidence in favor of the theory. And he seems to be doing this all the time. And, yeah. and, and I mean, that, that's, that's the classic argument which somebody who is accusing someone of pseudoscience will make, and, and, and scientists mm -hmm. often make it to economists, by the way, which is yeah. that you can never actually predict anything. You just retrodict. So whatever yeah. happens, you say, oh, yes, well, of course that was the mm -hmm. way. There was this reaction. Of course that's the way. I can describe that within the, my theory. You can't actually predict it 100% accurately ahead of time, but right. you can... Uh, you can always... You, everything can be can a confirming it. instance. Right. That becomes a pretty important strand within the philosophy of science. When Velikovsky moves to Princeton in 52, in 50, he lives uh, right by the lake that people row on here. And in 53, he sees a guy get out of a rowboat kind of in front of his house. Um, incidentally, in the, like pretty much on the spot where my house is now built. Um, That's a coincidence. Please. It's a total coincidence. Uh, I have been to Velikovsky's old house, which is now occupied by a faculty member. And he goes up to the guy, and they've met in the 20s. It's Albert Einstein, the most famous person who lives in Princeton. So uh, Einstein doesn't remember that they had met in the 20s. And he doesn't quite remember, although he does a little bit, that they met in the, in the mid-40s. Velikovsky took the train down to Princeton to talk his theory through. And Einstein said, don't publish this. Um, but he did, and Einstein's very, very angry about it. And he doesn't want to talk to him. But eventually, they start to chat, and uh, mostly because the, uh, um, Einstein's secretary and his uh, stepdaughter persuade him that he should uh, sort of listen to this guy a little bit. So they have a lot of discussions. And one of the things Einstein says to him, look, what you're doing is not scientific. But what would be scientific is if you had predictions, if you could predict something. And so he goes on a quest through his book. He rereads Worlds in Collision and thinks, what are my predictions? Well, I predict that Venus should be hot because it's incandescent. It just burst from Jupiter. It should be warm. And most people at the time thought Venus is probably cold, like Mars uh, or the moon. Second, 
Venus uh, should have um, wait a second. The second is that no, there's a lot of issues. Venus is a weird planet. It it spins the opposite way mm -hmm. from all the other planets, and it, it has the most nearly perfect circular orbit, which is actually not good for Velikovsky's argument. But it, it does have this odd uh, rotation point, so it should be warm. The second is that Jupiter should emit radio noises. And Jupiter is cold, it shouldn't do that, but he thinks it should because it's electromagnetically active. And third, he thinks that the atmosphere of Venus should have hydrocarbons in it because he thinks that's why the flames came down because the hydrocarbon-rich atmosphere of Venus left traces on Earth and deposited large amounts of crude oil on the planet. Uh, that, that a large part of the book is about the carbohydrates versus hydrocarbons disperse. So there should have been some exchange of atmospheres so we can reverse engineer what the atmosphere of Venus should be like. So those are his predictions. Turns out Venus is actually warm. Uh, we now say it's warm because of planetary atmosphere and the greenhouse effect, which incidentally was the topic of specialization of Carl Sagan, planetary atmospheres, especially Venus. And Carl Sagan becomes one of the most uh, visible anti-Velikovskians in the 70s. Uh, the second prediction, radio noises, is discovered in 55. Uh, 50, from, Jupiter. Four, four, from Jupiter, radio noises from Jupiter, and Einstein's very impressed by it. He's like, oh, wow, I guess you actually did predict that. <laughs> um, and so he says, look, because you predicted that, I'm going to write a letter for whatever you want, for any test you want of your theory. And what he asks for is a bit of a mummy so that he can do carbon dating. Carbon dating is also 1950, so it's right in this moment, to figure out whether his dating scheme is correct. Right. But Einstein dies before he writes the letter uh, in uh, spring of 55. And uh, Velikovsky has that letter written by Helen Dukas, Einstein's longtime secretary. Uh, the third one, the carbohydrates, is a, is a bigger issue. Um, because when the first probes go by Venus and start studying its atmosphere, beginning of the space age, uh, one of the NASA people uh, is giving a press conference and they have found certain... Uh, they had found some carbon in the atmosphere, but they didn't want to say organic compounds because they thought that made people think that there's life there right. and that would be a terrible. So what the person says is hydrocarbons. And it turns out that that's a misinterpretation of the evidence and it's not actually true. But he says hydrocarbons and then the Velikovskians, who aren't many but are loud, say we've been confirmed. The space age, we made predictions based on... Velikovsky made predictions based on these ancient texts that turns out are true now that we can actually do space age stuff. So this ancient knowledge is, is future knowledge. Right. Um, so prediction becomes a very important part of this story. And that's part of uh, Velikovsky trying, constantly trying to get himself accepted by the establishment. Yeah. Because he believes, and I think this is true, I say this a lot in the book, um, all the people who are labeled pseudoscientists think they're scientists. They don't think that they're frauds. Yeah. Uh, so they, Velikovsky thinks he's doing science, so he makes predictions when he says, oh, that's what science does. And when he's right, he wants to be accepted. And so he propagates these particular ideas, and there's a, a lot of discussion about um, these particular claims. There's a, letter to the, uh, there's a letter to the editor in Science from two very distinguished local Princeton physicists saying, well, give the guy a hearing. I mean, like he did actually predict some stuff. So maybe we should do some tests. But at the same time, you say that he, th he thinks he's doing science and he feels he's doing science. You also talk about how he talked about himself often as a historian. Yes, rather absolutely. Than, rather than as a scientist. So, I mean, that's not to say that he didn't think he was doing science, mm -hmm. but he referred to himself or valued himself as a historian. But he wasn't accepted by the historical oh, community either. No, and the historian, uh, that's a, uh, the, he does say historian a lot of times, but he, he makes scientific claims, but he does think of his identity primarily as a historian because that's his method. 
his method was to look through ancient texts and interpret what happened. And it led him to a reinterpretation of science. But fundamentally, he's deep down a historian. You can look, the, the reception of Velikovsky by the astronomers and the physicists versus the um, historians is an excellent contrast. The physicists get very, very upset about it. The historians, who in many ways, he's more transformative of their field. He wants them to reject centuries. He thinks all of their chronologies backwards. He thinks they're reading the texts wrong. Uh, they ignore him. There's a couple of reviews. They're sort of negative. They say no one should bother reading this. And there's no history war. There's no discussion about this in the history field. It just drops like a stone. And you can see the historians aren't in a particular position of anxiety in that period. They don't feel a need to combat it. it they get things like this all the time about the ancient world, and so they just let it go. And the historians are always backburnered in this particular uh, conversation. So part of what happens by the reception of Worlds in Collision is instead of it being a history book with some science claims, it becomes a science book with some history claims. And so the scientist's reaction channels it in the direction of science when it could have been channeled differently. And how much of that is because of the way it came out, you mentioned at the very beginning Macmillan yeah. and, and the, the protestations against Macmillan and Macmillan eventually withdrew from it and gave, yeah. the, gave the rights to Doubleday and so forth. Now, uh, my understanding is that Macmillan was primarily in the business of textbooks, as yes. you say, and primarily science textbooks as That's well. Correct. Is, is yeah. that right? So, so I guess another way to look at this is, well, the historians might have reacted differently had had Macmillan been primarily distributing history textbooks it could, or could, like It that. could very well have been. Um, and he, he shopped it to eight different publishers, and the first one that bit was Macmillan. So he went through many different places. And the original book was called Exodus and Exile, and it was the history arguments and the science arguments together. And this editor at uh, Macmillan named James Putnam said, we'll take it, we'll publish both, but we want you to separate them so that the science stuff we publish first, and then we'll publish the history stuff later. So part of that's the press channeling it that way. Right. Even Velikovsky says in the beginning of Worlds in Collision, I um, absolutely believe you need the history argument to understand why I think all these texts are referring to the same incident, but that will come later. Just assume that I've proved that, and then you get the science argument. Right. So part of it is the press that, that produced it. Um, uh, and part of it is also how it was received. So often when something like this happens, the instant reaction someone today would have is, well, it must not have been peer-reviewed because no one would have approved this. Right. Well, peer review is also a, a much more recent phenomenon than people tend to assume. So Nature didn't, as a matter of course, peer-review its articles until the 70s. Physical review only after World War II peer-reviewed, as a matter of course, every single article. Mm -hmm. They peer-reviewed some earlier, and you can find elements of peer review in the 19th century, which is when the scientific journal is born in its modern incarnation. But it, it wasn't routine. So, but it, this was sent out for peer review twice, two sets of three reviewers. All of them clear it, but what they say is interesting. They say, okay, so this book's not right, but it's interesting, and we should, and it will probably sell because it's well-written and has exciting stories in it, and it might spark some discussion about science, religion, and history, and so good. Uh, let's, let's, let's publish it by all means. I think it'll be good for you. So what they see peer review as being about is not vouchsafing the truth and veracity of this text, but rather giving advice to the publisher about what's worth publishing and what's not based on the publisher's criteria, not the community's criteria. Um, because of many incidents, partially, and there's a many 
very complex evolution of this. But because of these many incidents, Velikovsky being one of them, peer review starts to mean something rather different. And it comes to be about gatekeeping and keeping out stuff that's not supposed to be out. Hmm. Um, but, uh, so it, 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 but all those people who review it, they're all scientists or science writers. And so they, the, the press wants to frame it as a science book as well, in part because I think they think science will sell better than an ancient history book. And some of them, I, I, if I remember correctly, some of them actually uh, wound up paying for their endorse their early endorsements. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the first round of reviews uh, is all science writers uh, and uh, p presenters of science to the public. One of them, Gordon Atwater, he's the one I think you're thinking of, yeah. was director of the planetarium at uh, New York, the Museum of Natural History in New York, the Hayden Planetarium, which is. You know, the most visible astronomer in the U.S. usually has that job. So he was Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson's predecessor. A predecessor through several people, right, right. yes. Predecessor <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Just, li just like um, Sagan, who's also wrapped up in this story and does a Cosmos episode about Velikovsky, Tyson is now right. the, the reincarnation of Cosmos. Right. Uh, I doubt Tyson will do an episode on Velikovsky because nobody knows who he is anymore, but um, people did oh, that. That's a good, good reason to do one. Yeah. Um, so uh, Atwater wrote a review of the book. And he said, yeah, it's probably not right, but it's interesting. Um, and, and this is what he says in the review, I'm the director of this planetarium. I would like to do a show about this so that people can learn about the solar system and so on using Velikovsky's story about Venus as a narrative where we can discuss whether it's right or wrong and have all the sides of the discussion, but it will be a way of educating people. And again, this, this idea of bringing science to the, into the public consciousness, getting right. people excited and interested exactly. and discussing and all this. And that's, that's one of science's missions. And the thing is that mission often conflicts with the gatekeeping mission because certain kinds of simplifications happen, but also some things that are sensational, people want to hear about and talk about, but they're just uh, rubbish. They're, yeah, they, they don't pass muster. So Atwater had gotten this job as a kind of patronage job uh, because he was a naval navigator who taught navigation to the Navy during World War II. And he did that in New York at the planetarium. It was an easy way to train large officer corps. Um, and then he got the job, and he was fired for the job. Uh, he wrote a, a, a review of Worlds in Collision, or a summary of it, for a periodical called uh, This Week which it's like parade, it's in the newspapers everywhere. Um, and bef pe people, the trustees got wind of this. Uh, and before it even appeared, that piece, they said, pack up your office. We'll pay you six months severance, but you need to resign now. And he never got a job in science again and grew increasingly embittered over time. And there's a lot of exchange of letters between him and Velikovsky, especially when after these attempts at rehabilitation fail in the 50s and people get interested in uh, Velikovsky and then certain acolytes of his get interested in reviving the persecution narrative. Yeah. They go back and ask uh, ask Atwater what happened exactly. Also, that editor James Putnam got fired. Uh, this was one of the many things. Apparently, there were many reasons why he was. And this was the strike that broke the camel's yeah. back. Yeah, this is just the last thing. Yeah. So I, I, I want to abstract away from Velikovsky sure, in, in a bit. Before I do, um, the, the sense that I have from reading this, and just getting back to the comment about maybe why Neil deGrasse Tyson should do an issue on Velikovsky is, um, this guy comes across as a really fascinating person. I mean, he comes across, first of all, as someone with just unbridled energy, that, that he can do so much, and so even if it's all completely wrong, just the idea that he's able to 
go into the library and collect all this data and amass it and build a narrative and, and defend it. And apparently he's a, a very prickly personality yeah. and very difficult to get. He seems to be somebody who just has energy coming out from every possible pore and is a real character. And, 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 and as you tell it, for me, I can, I can see, I can imagine Einstein being bothered by this guy and bothered by this guy and eventually coming to think, you know, this guy's probably crazy. And apparently he used the word crazy a couple of times. Yeah. But, but he's an entertaining fellow to have around. Yeah. You know, Einstein, of course, was a, is a big anti-conformist, mm -hmm. and, and everything's attributable to Einstein. But I think that's one which is probably <laughs> no, it's true. Probably true. <laughs> and and he spoke in German to yeah. him, and and Einstein thought, ah, well, fine. You know, I'm around all these guys, and, and he's singing a, from and the same a, song. He's a Zionist, and that that has an appeal for Einstein. Yeah. So you get this sense of this guy being an incredibly colorful character, and you have to tip your hat to to just his his work ethic, if nothing else, yeah. if, if no veridical aspect of his, of his work whatsoever. I mean, he really seems like a fascinating it, figure. It, he, he's, again, he's 50 before he even starts writing this thing. The only other person I can think of with this much energy and a complete turnaround in their career is Ivan Pavlov, who had a scientific career and then a separate scientific career after winning the Nobel Prize, which is all the psychology stuff, and mm -hmm. does most of his advanced work after 65. Um, it, it just the, the energy is amazing, and because Velikovsky lived in this town, I've talked to several people who have met him. Yeah. Uh, and you can watch YouTube videos because there were two documentaries, a BBC and a CBC documentary, made of him uh, while he was still alive. And it doesn't come across. They show him giving lectures to college audiences, and he looks eighty-three. He's talking. It doesn't come across there, but he's six three, six four, very tall, uh, and everybody mentions this very penetrating eyes, extremely. Uh, like seeing through you, very charismatic, very engaged. And when he talks about this stuff, it's so clear that he's sincere and he's so convinced that he can convince you. Um, when he, in the inner circle, he's, there's a lot of prickliness associated with that. That's often true with charismatic people. Uh, but uh, there are many reasons why this guy just stands out. It makes sense in a, why he was popular on college campuses why people were so persuaded by him that they, some of them moved to the area so that they could come and visit him on Hartley Avenue more regularly. Um, many of them uh, kept up long correspondences with him. And, and this also brings up something that you had mentioned, which as I'm now gently trying to generalize, yeah. for people who are on the fringe, so he, he tried to be accepted, he tried to have his theories accepted by the scientific community, he was rebuffed. He tried to have them accepted by the historical community, he was rebuffed. Mm -hmm. And eventually, he was able to, uh, by, by good fortune, by capitalizing on the counterculture movement in the 60s and what have you, uh, he was eventually able to establish his own network and system outside of that. There were journals that were yeah. Velikovskian journals and there were uh, people in the media and, 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 and so forth. Um, and, but then there's this issue of once you set up your own camp, you have to protect the orthodoxy Absolutely. within that particular camp. And so there, there, there's, there are all these, these meta questions about how he can maintain his own discipline within his troops. And then some people are, are hurling epithets at him like what you're doing to me because I'm, I'm coming up with some variation on the theory exactly what, uh, what, what people had done to you in terms of censorship or in terms of forcing you to conform. So you get this interesting sociological effect which presumably happens with anybody who sets up their camp outside of the established areas. They need a base as it were. Yeah, no, it, this, uh, there's a kind of fractal quality of this. Like <laughs> at each layer you go, it seems to replicate itself. I call this in the book mimesis. It's like um, that 
Velikovsky says, okay, I'm a scientist of some kind. I'm a historian. I'm a scholar. What do I do? I do what other people do. Well, when they're not accepted by the establishment, you try to figure out new ways to persuade them. If those don't work and you're still right because you're convinced you're right, you need to have a research program. And so you develop a research program. And then you need a foundation or some way of funding those particular research projects. And he gets a couple of angels who are interested in funding that. Mm. Then you, uh, he has a, uh, a research assistantship. Someone donates the money and an undergraduate from Princeton becomes his RA or a high school kid in many cases gets a summer subsidized to live in his house and help file his papers. You get journals and those journals have the same structures, a kind of peer review, but the peer review is all people who are Velikovskians, but likewise particle physicists would not send to a biologist an exactly. article. So you replicate those same structures now, what does every scientific community do? They guard their borders. So even if you uh, are on the fringe and you think you'd be more tolerant of those creationists that you can wave at over here and the parapsychology people over here, you actually have to be quite worried that their theory is going to make you look bad. And so you have to be careful to make it clear that you're not them. You're something distinct. And when they try to blur the borders or push you further out to the fringe, you need to be very aggressive about maintaining it. Part of the reason you don't see that aggression the same way uh, in neurobiology labs is because um, they're so close to the center that, that there's no risk of them being completely fringed out. You can have disagreements, fundamental conceptual disagreements that go for decades in a somewhat hostile but not uh, you're a crank and a crackpot kind of way. But on the fringe, uh, any question of your legitimacy is so sensitive because your legitimacy, you're clinging on by your fingernails. Uh, you have to be much more aggressive about it. So whenever anybody tries to cross the streams and do a little creationism and a little Velikovsky at once, Velikovsky can't tolerate it. And the right. creationists can't tolerate it either. Uh, all, everybody on the fringe thinks everybody else is pseudo and that they're the legitimate path. And that's very common. Uh, a very common phenomenon. that You see this in any area that's slightly edgy. Because like, anytime you want to make uh, study certain claims about the brain or claims about social psychology or claims that are going to be that are very easy to have a parallel claim that looks like it but is kooky you have to be very very careful about precision so if I'm somebody who doesn't have a scientific background at all mm -hmm. and I'm listening to this and I say well okay maybe this is just a big statement of moral relativism or, or scientific relativism that everything's the same it just depends on how big your army is and it depends on how big your propaganda machine is and and there's no objective difference between anything that we call science and anything that we call pseudoscience mm -hmm. tell me tell me the uh, the line of demarcation give me a clear sense that this is science over here and that's pseudoscience over there because if you can't do that then well everything's all the same okay so i'm not sure that everything's all the same like let's let, I'll break that apart into two parts. The, the is everything all the same if there's no line of demarcation? I'll set aside for a second. Uh, the question about a bright line of demarcation. There's been a long quest for this. In a sense, when you go back to the earliest writings about science in the Western tradition, uh, the Hippocratic Corpus has this text in it called On the Sacred Disease. It's about 450 BC, I think. Uh, it's, anyway. It's old. Old. <laughs> Uh, and it's about uh, the, fall, the, the sacred disease, which is also known as the falling sickness, or what we would perhaps call today epilepsy. And he has an explanation for what epilepsy is, and it's not the one we believe now. But what he's worried about are these witch doctors and faith healers, and those people, they're terrible. 
So from the very beginning of the Western scientific tradition, this border thing has been an issue. It's always an issue whenever you're trying to guard this stuff. So people have been looking for, well, how can we tell? And the problem is there's no way to tell ex ante. You can always tell ex post. You can always look back and be like, oh, well, that theory isn't confirmable, doesn't actually have any evidence, or it's logically inconsistent, or it doesn't explain as much as this other theory, right. which is consistent with all these other theories we have. But once you have a theory that works. Once you have a theory that works, you, then you can say, well, it works. Yeah. Or if a theory, you're not quite sure if it works, but it seems plausible, you can keep things in play for a long time. Yeah. There are lots of variants of atomism and anti-atomism that are at play in the 19th century. No one's quite sure which is right. And for about 60, 70 years, people just let them all be, waiting to see what's going to happen. But, um, so, let me see, where was I here? Oh, so the bright line is very, is a, the bright line is an issue that people are very concerned about. Uh, it first starts to get systematized. Uh, the person people usually point to on this is Karl Popper, right. uh, who uh, in the 50s gave a speech, a uh, lecture, which became a canonical source for people interested in what he called the demarcation problem. That's where the term gets its name. He claimed that in 1919, he was wandering through Vienna. He ends up at, uh, in the UK, but he was at Vienna at the time. And he was very impressed with news of the eclipse expedition that confirmed Einstein's general theory of relativity. And what he was impressed by was that Einstein risked something. Einstein said, light bends around stars, it bends this much. Go ahead and look. If it doesn't, I'm wrong. Einstein's actual views about how the experiment would work are uh, more nuanced than that, but this is the, the public presentation. It's yeah, like, that, that experiment was a bit of a, anyway. It's a bit of a messy experiment. Yeah, a mess. <laughs> uh, but but, but th this is the part, this is what sure. the news presents it as. Exactly. Like, and that's how Einstein became a rock star, as I understand yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's what it's made him that. famous, is this particular thing. And it's the, uh, in a sense, very masculinist way of thinking about it. It's like gambling. It's like, I put everything, I risk everything. I risk being wrong. And that's what makes him scientific. The contrast to that, in Popper's eyes, are three things he sees in Vienna. Scientific socialism, that is Marxist theories of history, Freud's theories of psychoanalysis, and Adler's theories of uh, psychology, which are inferiority complex stuff. And what he, bothers me about these is they don't risk anything. Like if they say, this is, what this is what causes homosexuality, and you say, well, here's someone who had that experience but isn't homosexual, and you're like, well, but they're latent. Or that's because they had this other thing which neutralizes the thing that I thought. So this gets back to my comments about economists. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's this confirmation bias thing. Right. Um, at the, the dominant philosophy, philosophical school in Vienna at the time is logical positivism, which had a very strong tradition of verificationism. That is, science is science because it finds things that verify itself against nature. And Popper thinks that's not true because you can always find verifying instances. Uh, or at least interpret them as verifying instances. What he wanted instead is what he came to call falsificationism. He says a science is a science when it says, uh, if you find this, I'm wrong. That is, it's not about being right, it's about not being wrong yet. And this is very, it's very appealing. I often get this quoted to me by undergraduates who don't see why I'm so exercised about this question. They're like, it's simple, falsifiability. Sure. If you say this- not, not just undergraduates, by the way, a lot of professional scientists will, will say that unhesitating. Yeah. And it's a very appealing criterion, except it's got a couple of problems. Uh, problem one is, how do you know that you falsified something? Like, if it were the case that you could do an experiment and it comes out with a null result and you falsified something, then everything we know about physics and chemistry would be wrong because high school students around the world have failed to replicate it. Sure. So you have to do the experiment right, but how do you know you've done the experiment right unless you get the result? This is something sociologists call the experimenter's regress, uh, that you really need to figure out some way of breaking that cycle. How do you know you've done the experiment right, but gotten a null result? Um, so that's one particular problem. 
which is very, very touchy in lots of cases. Einstein, by the way, sorry to cut you yeah. off, but Einstein has, again, a quote which could be apocryphal, but in this case, I also don't think it is. Uh, uh, there's this famous line that surely you know when somebody said to him, well, what if they had not yeah. actually got this result? And then he would have said, well... I'd be sorry for the dear Lord, the theory is correct. Exactly. I think that is apocryphal, but I don't think it... I, th I think he didn't say that, but I don't think, it, I think, I, it. I think it's consistent with a lot of things Einstein would have said. Um, and th there was a case like this for special relativity, where, which made predictions about electrons' measurements. And uh, this, there was a series of experiments by Kaufman where he measured these things and he didn't get the result. And Einstein said, yeah, no, something must be wrong with the experiment. And something was. Something was, but it took them three years to find it. Yeah. So for a long time, Einstein was just denying this experiment. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very tricky to determine when that happens. That's problem one. Problem two is a problem, any demarcation criterion, whatever it has to be, has to cut the world in the right place. Right? Like you, want, you want to make sure that all the things that we think of as sciences are scientific, and those things that we think of as fringe or pseudo are not. So it should divide that well. Problem is, there's lots of sciences which have a very hard time coming up with falsifying instances, such as the historically engaged sciences like um, evolutionary evolutionary theory, um, geology, cosmology, you can't rerun the tape. Absolutely. So like you can just say like the universe was created this way and you're like well but what's the falsifiable statement? It's hard to find one. Sure. It's hard to have another big bang. Exactly. Like well, if we could do one well, I'd be happy to do it again yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, we can't. So it also any parapsychology has falsifiable statements everywhere. So does Velikovsky. Velikovsky says if you go get the atmosphere of Venus it will have hydrocarbons in it. No one bothers to go. So he makes falsifiable claims all the time. Uh, likewise, the creationists do, flat earth people do, everybody makes these falsifiable claims. Flat it's, earth people do? What are the flat earth uh, falsifiable claims? Do you know? uh, like you can't cross Antarctica straight through. Okay. Because the earth is flat right. with the North Pole in the middle. So <laughs> like you, um, and there's also claims about the bending of light, that, that uh, sunrise and sunset are optical illusions that are caused because light doesn't travel straight. It, there, there is a, there's a theory, it's not a very popular theory, but You have there. to do a lot of reading in your line of work. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> some of it is, the, the, one of the things that stands out about Velikovsky is the prose is really great, uh, and much of the prose in this field is not. Um, so uh, the, the, the third problem about Popper, which is a technical problem, is that it requires you to not believe in truth. If you think that to be consistent about it, it means that nothing's ever true, that mm. scientists make no true claims. I can't say this chair is made of atoms. I can just say no one has disproved that this chair is made of atoms yet. Right. And that's a, it's a very uncomfortable position to be in long-term. And I think, Niels Bohr or something. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think most scientists would say, like, I don't think that. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't think that, then falsification has been inconsistent. So that bright line, it's very appealing and it's got a lot of press, so people know about it, but it's very problematic. It's actually the law of the US. It's written into a Supreme Court decision, McLean versus Arkansas, which is the decision that says that creationism is religion, not science, and therefore can't be in the schools. And Overton, the judge who made the decision, put in a series of demarcation criteria into the ruling, and one of them is falsifiability. Hmm. The second hearing, which is at a lower court level about intelligent design in 2006, I believe, um, Kitzmiller uh, versus Dover School Board, uh, the judge doesn't use falsifiability. Uh, because the testimony at the time says that's actually not a very good criterion. Instead, he uses things like consensus of the scientific community, which is a sociological argument. Sure. And those are the ones I tend to, So this gets back to the is everything relativist bunk. Right. Um, there are features of the scientific world, uh, scientific theories and the scientific community that we know today that 
don't provide bright lines, but provide you degrees of confidence about what's true and not true. So uh, there are many claims in physics that you could question, but if you question this claim, it turns out there are eight claims that would be wrong dependent on it, and each of those claims are tied to more things. So, so it's the, a very the consistent somehow. Yeah, like and eventually you get to something like the, like uh, the second law of thermodynamics or conservation of energy. You get to something that you're just not going to mess with. Right. So uh, the 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 whole set of things travel together. And part of the problem with Velikovsky's theories to the scientific community was if he's right about this Venus thing, then all these other things we think about orbits don't work. And we think those things work for a lot of very good reasons, and the other reasons have good reasons behind them. And so at a certain point, there's a lot of inertia. Science is actually a fairly conservative field this way. People think of it as always revolutionary, always uh, sort of transgressing borders, but there's a lot of built-in agreement with prior knowledge that's in it. Uh, it's rare that you get a complete transformation and overhaul of everything that people think. Yeah. Um, so so that, that, that's another, one reason. Another is that scientists agree about a lot of fundamentals. Um, and they, uh, you have points of contact between biology and physics that work. And that, that also increases confidence, but you're not going to get a bright line. That does, it, the fact that there's no bright line I'm actually kind of comfortable with. I understand why it makes certain people antsy. But you kind of want there to be weird thinking at the edges. Well, because you, that, you, you invoke this idea of a balance, right? Yeah. I mean, which is, which is obvious when you think about it, but I think you put it very nicely. Um, if you're too conservative, if you don't allow any heterodox views in whatsoever, yeah. then you're not going to have any innovation whatsoever. You're going to have a, a stagnant field. You're right? also gonna, your field but you're is. also going to have zero fringe, because right. any time someone says something that's not in the orthodoxy, they're out. Right. And you can allow a little bit of innovation, but very, very little. Right. Um, and, and, and so this is trade-off between, yeah. between that. And then, of course, if you have too much, if, you, if the bar is too low and you let everything in, well, then it's just catastrophic because most yeah. of the stuff is just complete rubbish. And, right? you'll, and, and, and the, the, time cons the, the time budget that you have to expend searching out everything is going to be very hard. So I call this the central dilemma. They wouldn't let me capitalize it in the book, but I like to think of it they as capital. They wouldn't let you? They, they, said, these, these... they said, we don't want to capitalize it. The, they have You're the author of the book. You can, you should be able. To, can, can you italicize it? Can you uh, I, I, I should have italicized <laughs> it. I think they would have let me do that. Um, but they, they, they're very resistant to a, capitalization. Wait, talk about a closed hierarchical system. Uh, anyway. oh, oh, copy editors are <laughs> among the highest of these. Um, so uh, somewhere you have to lay that boundary because if you if you look at it on face, this is a classic example, somewhat overused. I'm going to use it anyway. Einstein's special relativity paper of 1905. It's a crazy paper. It would never have been accepted by peer review. It cites nothing. No. It has the only experiment it mentions is an experiment a six-year-old can do with a battery and a coil. Uh, it uh, seems to refute most of the accepted views about electromagnetism and doesn't deal with inconsistencies that it seems to raise. Beautifully written. Though. It's beautifully written. It's an amazing <laughs> argument. And now we look at it as canonical because we also think it's right. Um, but... The reason why it was accepted is because there wasn't peer review. It's that the editor in charge of that part of the journal, Max Planck, read it and said, this is really interesting. We need to talk about this. And so printed it. Um, that's strongly innovative. Quantum mechanics in all of its forms would never have gotten through it. It changes too many of the fundamental assumptions of physics. But editors were willing to let stuff go through. They were willing to experiment because they thought we're in a bind with some features of atomic physics at the moment. We're willing to let... Hmm. Some of our barriers looser to get new ideas in. Many of the new ideas are now crazy when you look back. But at the time, 
so before well, before there was a neutron, people were like, well, there's only two particles, an electron and a proton. But we seem to have something else that weighs like a proton. It's probably a proton which swallowed an electron, and that there are electrons in the nucleus of an atom. And this nuclear electron theory has about a 10-year life, and then it goes away. And now if you, someone said, told you there are no neutrons, you'd be like, well, that's crazy, but perfectly plausible. Yeah. Um, many, there, there, so there are many instances where people are willing to relax how innovative they want to be. Another classic instance of something that's rejected as too innovative and later comes to be thought of as actually true is continental drift. This is the other classic example along with Einstein. Um, when Alfred Wegener first proposes the idea, it's uh, very strongly rejected by American geologists and European geologists kind of don't like it. And it's rejected for a bunch of reasons. There's a lot of very good historical scholarship on this. Um, not on the grounds, much of it's on the grounds like, we don't need this mechanism to explain the continents. And you don't have a mechanism that explains your motion, or we have better mechanisms that would work in contravention of this. And also, you can't move through the ocean floors because the ocean floors are actually harder than the continents. Hmm. So the continents would break apart if they moved across oceans. That's actually true. The way it now works is the seafloor spreads and pushes continents apart. Hmm. Um, that's the way we now think it works. Uh, so that theory went into abeyance for about three decades. Wegener dies tragically in Greenland doing experiments um, in a winter storm. And then in the 50s, it starts to become the orthodoxy for how we now think about continents. And the Velikovskians liked this argument. Lots of people on the fringe like this. They say, see, you guys rejected right. it, and now it's in. Right. And that's because different times, new data comes in. And part of the reason it got accepted in the 50s is during the war, there's lots of mapping of the ocean floor to try and find Nazi submarines. So all these oceanographers are conscripted and do this kind of research. And they have lots of classified data that indicate to them that the strips of magnetism, magnetic rock on the ocean floor go in bands. Uh, that there seems to be some kind of seafloor motion that would explain that. So they get data that later. they can't explain later. Uh, but if you just fringed it out and said, no one will speak of continental drift again, and it just vanishes out of trace, you'd have to reinvent it later. So letting stuff float on the fringes is a way of getting new ideas and occasionally sharpening one's critical abilities. Many in the 70s, when lots of these doctrines are floating around, like Erich von Däniken's Chariots of the Gods or Velikovsky or so on, many science teachers would assign the books in their science classes and say, okay, the assignment for the midterm is you pick a scientific claim in this book and show it's wrong. And then people go and they do research, they learn how to make reasoned arguments, and that was supposed to be a way of sharpening your teeth. Yeah. There's, this whole idea of raising science in the public consciousness, triggering the interest of bright young minds mm -hmm. and so forth, it seems that there are, there are two aspects of this. I mean, the, the first one is teaching people what we currently understand. Mm -hmm. And the second one is teaching people the process of science. Right. And, and I think a lot of the arguments that were against Velikovsky wasn't even so much about the particularities of what he was predicting or his theories, mm -hmm. but the way he was going about predicting it. Right. And, and his invocation of uh, nebulous mechanisms, his invocation of, of uh, you mentioned this earlier in passing, the, the importance he gives to electromagnetic theory. Yeah, he doesn't believe in gravity. He thinks and it's so that's, that's yeah. a bit heretical. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> and so it's not just, oh, look, Jupiter's emitting radio waves, and therefore you must absolutely be right. right. It's, the, it's the logical process of what it is right. that you're doing. So the classic broken clock can be right. It can be twice, twice a day. A day. So like, like just that you said a true statement 
among a bunch of false statements doesn't mean we should believe you. Right. And that debate happens in public uh, about these theories. Right. And yeah. I guess that's the other side of this. I mean, as we're looking now and we're saying, okay, this was an interesting historical uh, situation, and there have been others in the past, and there will doubtless be others in the future. But so I'm listening to this, and I say, well, what should we do now? How, where should we set the bar exactly between uh, um, to make sure that it, we're sufficiently innovative but we're not wasting our time chasing, right. chasing after these things. What should, what should we do in terms of public policy? How should we educate our children about the process of science? How strict should we be in terms of conforming uh, to a set of established beliefs and making sure that we don't waste our time, as I said mm -hmm. before, with everything mm -hmm. else? Um, and, and recognizing something else you said about the causal links to the entire edifice, that it's not just enough to say, well, this could be right, you know, you never know, but if, that, if the implication of that particular statement blows up everything we've understood for the past 300 years and would have yeah. to have a parallel justification for everything else we've understood, the, the likelihood of that mm -hmm. happening is, of course, extremely small, or at least the likelihood of it being true is extremely small. So it's not your job. You're mm -hmm. a historian. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but is there anything that we can abstract away and generalize in terms of um, being tolerant, being less tolerant, mm -hmm. moving forwards in any coherent way? Yeah, so uh, I, have, I have views on these questions, but I am a historian. And so, as I like to say, the future is not in my business. Okay, so, but uh, you can put your historian I hat can, away because uh, we're having a conversation. Yeah, we're having a conversation. So. Um, so I think this is a, it's, an, it's the question to ask. I mean, what do we do science education for? We do it partially because we want people to know some things, but really we want them to understand something about how we understand what we understand about nature. And I take that extremely seriously. Uh, I think part of uh, my position on this is that as an outsider to two different fields, I observe something. One is that philosophers have been stuck for a long time trying to figure out sharp demarcation criteria. And many of them now would say, Popper's wrong. There are no sharp demarcation criteria. But that doesn't mean there aren't family resemblances or certain kinds of uh, things that seem to go together that make science science. Um, and there's some promise to those particular approaches. But they are fuzzy at the edges. They will allow mess. So philosophers struggling with this question. Scientists struggle with it not at all. Every day, every scientist demarcates. They hit delete when they see that email. They don't read that paper. They look at this table of contents. They're like, oh, that's not that guy. He's crazy. I'm not going to look at that. They read the abstract. They know it's not worth their time. Oh, this one might be worth my time. That guy's crazy, but sometimes he's right. Uh, th they do this trivially. And, and so that, to me, is, a, is um, a source of, instead of despair at the philosophers, the scientists' uh, interaction with this is a source of actually immense confidence. Because it seems like we can actually we do this. Uh, we just don't know quite how we do it, which means it's a very complex, socially complicated, embedded process. And it's not uniform, of course, across oh, across each regions field. or or, 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 personalities, or personalities, right? Like so, somebody might be, some geologists might be like, I'm more willing to tolerate. My bar is lower. I will read more crap in order to get that one interesting idea. And somebody else says, No, actually, I'm I'm pretty set on how mountains are made. I I just want to look at the the adjustments. So different people, different disciplines, different time periods, different national communities or different educational traditions, say people educated in Scotland versus at Cambridge, would have very different attitudes towards this at different moments. And so one thing that historians and sociologists like to do is see what scientists actually do. And so we can see that it's actually not a problem for scientists right now to do this. So one thing we could do is nothing and just let the system work the way it is. It seems like 
very few, very, very few fringe theories that are absolutely empirically wrong have made it. So that should give us some sense that this system sort of works. It may not be maximally efficient, yeah, but it, it but, works at the end of the day. But we could try and tweak it, right? Like one could imagine, uh, so grant agencies are one, ways where, are one place where this gets manifested, right? The p grants are peer-reviewed. Peer review is a system to set the bar. And what ends up happening is sometimes some peer reviewers have a very high bar, some have a very low bar. You can imagine, and this has been proposed uh, for, say, long-distance space travel, for example, that why don't we do something like the X Prize? Uh, we want to figure out how to get a plane that flies into the stratosphere. Let's just make it open. Let people try whatever crazy theory they want to try, and we'll give them a hunk of money at the end. The longitude problem was solved with something similar. Right. Just let, let's make it a race. Let's not make it a competition in advance. Let's judge it at the end. Right. Or we could say, we have this particular pot of money, and we allocate 5%, 2% of our budget on R&D to really weird ideas, and just let it go. Some parapsychology stuff, this was told to me by someone, so this is an anecdote, I'm not sure it's true. The parapsychology research was funded by McDonnell Douglas or airplane manufacturers because if it's possible to manipulate machines with your mind, the even stakes are the, so high. Stakes are so high, and yeah. it's a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is chump change. So just give it and see what happens, maybe. So maybe we should have some of our money dedicated to the real blue sky stuff. Maybe psychic stuff actually happens. Wouldn't we like to know? Maybe we should dedicate some of our budget to debunking. That is like certain people go around and all they do is find theories and argue why they're wrong. Now, what I argue in the book, and I think this is actually true, is I don't think science literacy solves this problem. Because the more excited you get people about science, which I think is a wonderful thing, I think it's what we should be doing, uh, the more you're going to get excited people who come up with fringe ideas. Right? Like, as science gets more visible, more people want to be scientists. Right. And since all the fringe people think they're scientists, uh, science literacy generates more of these ideas. So one thing we could do is we could tweak our system to be more efficient and to actually explore some of the stuff on the fringes more. We could do nothing. Uh, or we could just relax a little bit about some of this stuff. And most of it has no policy implications. And so we can be relaxed about it. Velikovsky has no policy implications. You don't have to worry about it. Um, whether we should vaccinate our kids or allow people to be not vaccinated about it has enormous policy implications. Uh, more so, I would say, than allowing creationism to be taught in public schools, which has issues having to do with establishment of religion, etc. But you could do something. The reason why that's even an issue in the U.S. is because um, education is controlled uh, in a decentralized fashion. If you were like France and had a centralized educational system, you can just not include that on the exam. It's just not part of sure. not part of knowledge. It's solved centrally, easily. Or you can include it, which you of course... Can, we, we, which would be the other, be yeah. The other um, <laughs> which is, the, which is which we're back to the Soviet genetics problem. Right, exactly. Uh, so there are benefits of centralization and decentralization. And we, so we can tweak it, we can leave it as it is, or we could adopt a more live and let live attitude towards some of this stuff and say, look, it, it doesn't do any harm. Some of it does do harm. Uh, eugenics, racial sciences okay. of various kinds have n enormous legacy to deal with. The thing is, eugenics wasn't fringe. Eugenics was the establishment science. Criticizing eugenics was fairly fringe in the late 19th century. Yeah. So um, history gives you a sense of humility about this. It also tells you that the system we have now is extremely inefficient but seems to be doing it, and doing it in a way that's kind of OK, um, which means, to my mind, that when Congress tries to meddle with the system and say, you guys at the National Science Foundation are funding this stuff that's irrelevant. 
it seems like the system funds some bad stuff and funds some good stuff. Necessarily. But it, necessarily. Yeah. And uh, th the track record is okay, not great. The track record for politics meddling with that particular with system disasters. is very bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, so better not to mess with that. Right. Um, so that would be where I would fall on it. It's wishy-washy and hand-wavy, and it doesn't solve the relativist guy on the, the anti-relativist man on the street necessarily in a clean way. But it seems to me that's the way the world works. Science is one of the most complicated human activities we do. Uh, it's global. It functions in lots of different places. It's extremely expensive. It's very unintelligible to most people because the barriers to entry are quite high, um, and it seems to have a lot of waste in the process. The, the, the median citation rate for a biomedicine article is zero. So over half of science art or med biomedical articles that are produced, no one cites. Possibly no one reads. And yet, as a process, it's incredibly impactful. Yeah. So, so uh, we, we could try to engineer the system to be, make more efficient, and there were various attempts in the 1930s to do so, uh, but we have been fairly bad at doing that. Um, some of the innovations have been quite good. The move to the journal, ways in which journal articles, the way online publishing now seems to work has various positive benefits to it. Physicists have basically done away with peer review in the form of the, the, the archive. Um, but yet they still choose to, pop, after their article has been out for a while, submit it to a journal anyway. Sure. Well, there's so, still the status issue that, that, that's associated with this. Or the, because for the very reason that anyone can get their paper more right. or less on the archives. So. Right. Well, anybody who has an .edu address. Right. Like, right. There, more there, or less. Um, there, there have been demarcation debates about sure. the archive, too. Uh, there's a thing called Vixra, which is archive backwards, which is an alternative archive for stuff that won't get on archive. And it's got some parapsychology on it, which is what it was started for, but it also has uh, Holocaust denial, lots of other stuff on right. it. Um, so... Uh, that's probably where I would fall on the tweaking of the system. I think we could tweak it in ways that would encourage innovation and say maybe in some places tamp down innovation if we think there's too many weird theories in this area and we need to, we need to really consolidate what we know. As you say, there's a cost that's involved in that Absolutely. on the other side. I wanted to, just a couple more questions. You've been very generous with your well, time. Sure. Thank you. Um, again, you're a historian and I understand what your job is, <laughs> your, what your day job is. Um, but you're also a keen observer of what happens in the scientific world as well as the world outside of science. Do you, do you look at, at particular issues and debates that are raging in contemporary science and ask yourself about the potential applicability of what it is that you know um, to that? So let me be very specific. So as I was reading your book and as I've been thinking about these, these things, one thing which has popped into my mind that's I think relevant in terms of a contemporary framing of these sorts of issues is the anthropic principle in mm -hmm. physics that I've heard several people say, you know, that's just not science. Mm -hmm. And these are not, um, uh, these are people, when, when they say that's not science, they don't mean that you're flaky or that you're mm -hmm. the equivalent of uh, the modern day equivalent of Elikovsky. They say that the thing that you are doing that is pretending to be part of this great institution that we call science in terms of its theory mm -hmm. is not actually scientific and they're usually invoking either directly Karl Popper or watered down yeah. versions of Popperian criteria mm -hmm. and they're saying this isn't falsifiable and you're using, you're using this, this notion that, um, uh, so, so let me just recapitulate uh, very, very briefly this idea that there are, there are an infinite number at least of, of 
de facto infinite number, a huge number of possibilities as to the way the world uh, achieved the state that it's in. And there's no way in principle of being able to distinguish between them, but uh, only a small percentage of them actually will support the conditions that we now find ourselves mm -hmm. in. And the argument goes that um, they're all equally plausible, but the only reason, uh, the justification for why we're in this very specific world is because had we been in another world, we wouldn't exist and we wouldn't be able to actually answer mm -hmm. that question. And so that's an argument that physicists are, I, w I would say, at least they have been, I haven't been paying strict attention, but uh, up until fairly recently, there was a, a rather radical shift in terms of a, p a particular type of physicist who was starting to invoke the anthropic principle mm -hmm. to justify their particular theories, where before they were, uh, they were riddling them with a good dose of scorn. And people on the other side were saying, well, hang on, um, that should be, if you are now invoking the anthropic principle, you should actually uh, go back to the blackboard and throw away your theory because that's not actually a, a scientific way of moving forward. So this is a long preamble to say, um, do you see any, any direct parallels with those sorts of things, either with the anthropic principle or, um, or, or anything else in mm -hmm. science? And, and do you feel that people are um, treating these concepts and these ideas with the appropriate amount of sophistication that they should be treating them with? Hmm. It's a great question. Um, the, the, way I would, uh, the way I would start to think about this is um, there's a lot of rather interesting blurring. We would call it blurring, looking at the outside of science and philosophy that happens always. And the reason why I say we would call it blurring from the outside is because on the inside, much of science is philosophical already. Like there's, atomism used to be an ethical precept uh, in antiquity. Really? It was it, part of the point about atoms and void was an argument against the gods. It was that the, everything is has a randomness built into it. It's not determinist. Right. And it, it so if you read uh, this is a, a diversion, but if you read Lucretius's on the or, uh, the nature of uh, things, when you read that, the first two books are about physical world and most of the rest of it is about how we should behave towards other people. It's like, it's that you need the atomism to get the ethical precepts, but the point is the ethics. Um, so there's always been blurring like that. What I, what triggers my attention most is when you start to get a fight. Um, and that's one of the lessons from the Velikovsky story is that there's certain flashpoint moments when people argue about um, pseudoscience more than other times. There's a flashpoint of it around the same time that Darwin comes out, late 1860s, 1859 is Origin of Species. There's a big debate, but that's also the time when spiritualism, seances, and whether in fact ghosts exist, is actively discussed. There's a kind of flashpoint. And there's a flashpoint in the late 40s, early 50s, and there seems to be a flashpoint about now with vaccines, global warming, it's a whole bunch of effects. Those flashpoints, I think, have historical and political moments that we can associate with them. There's uh, a change in the stability of the institutions that we're used to, dramatic transformations in the status of science up or down. In the case of now, it's down, actually, with the end of the Cold War with physics, once the dominant science now ceding much of that uh, cultural authority to biomedicine and biology, molecular biology. Um, the rise of patents as a way of funding things. It, it, the science system has been undergoing enormous transformations since the 70s. And that's, um, that's a very interesting thing to look at, but it has these consequences. One of the things that happens when you lose some of your visibility is you're able to allow more risks in. And the anthropic principle seems to me that. 
that it's being entertained now at a moment when pe people say, you know, the fine-tuning problem, this problem about the constants, it's actually an interesting problem. Let's try to think through ways, and if we're going to think through it, we have to drop that bar. We have to actually allow some weirder ideas in and mm. see whether they work. Whereas um, back when you're trying to measure uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, you have you have enough stuff to do. You have enough stuff Real to do. You're, stuff. you're busy, it's expensive, <laughs> you have grant lines, and you start to see more uh, speculation about uh, fundamentals of quantum physics in the 70s when there's a massive crash in the job market. Um, this is something a colleague of mine at MIT, David Kaiser, has worked on uh, extensively. There's, there's a big hiring boom from the 50s and 60s and a, a recession that happens in the 70s. It frees people up to do different kinds of things because you're unemployed or partially employed. You no longer have to churn out grants because there aren't any. You can do what you want to do. You can do what you want to do. And when you do that, you allow certain levels of expansion. So the, the rise of the anthropic principle as a plausible idea, multiverse as a plausible idea, is an interesting marker to me of something that's happening within the physical sciences. Um, I don't know what the lesson of that, what, whether we should or should not entertain these ideas, but the point is people are. And the ideas have been around for a long time, but when do they all of a sudden start to get legs? That usually tells you something about how the community is thinking about restructuring itself. And that's a very exciting, for some people, a very nerve-wracking moment for the sciences. For me, a very exciting moment for the sciences. Like The fact that this is being entertained is there's a strong and a weak form, and the, the weak form is basically an epistemological claim that we can only speak about what we can observe, and we can observe this. Your physics background is showing, by the way. No, the, the, strong weak form. <laughs> the, the strong and weak form is, uh, <laughs> a, 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 when I was a grad student, there was a philosopher I knew who was working on a thesis about this, uh, so it sticks in my mind. Yeah. Um, the strong form that the world kind of evolved to evolve us, or had to evolve us, I understand why people are uncomfortable with it. But often when you get discomfort, it's because people aren't necessarily talking about the same thing. Yeah. Some people are advocating one, some are advocating another. Yeah. That's a normal situation in the sciences. It only um, emerges into a, so that the real fights about string theory seem to me to have happened in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And there was like a, a very active uh, ch charges of this isn't science, this is pseudoscience, there's no connection to experiment, it's not real. And that's seems to me as an outsider less visible now. And that says something that the community has stopped being worried about a particular set of issues and is now worried about something else. Mm. So you're astutely paying attention to what is going on uh, in, in the present day, notwithstanding... As much as I can. Notwithstanding the fact <laughs> yeah. that you're a historian, but you also live in the present day. Yeah, yes. And, uh, uh, um, are, the, are the practicing scientists paying attention to you and, and your colleagues? Are they paying attention to not just historians of science? Are they paying attention to sociologists of science? Are they paying attention to philosophers of science? The broader... Ambit, it's a difficult question to answer, yeah. I appreciate, but, but um, the reason I'm asking is because I can imagine, in principle, if I were somebody who didn't know anything about uh, the scientific world, I could say, well, gosh, you've studied long and hard how scientific uh, ideas evolve, how they gain currency, how they don't gain currency, what some of the factors might be. If I were a practicing scientist, I would say, well, this might be very interesting for me to be, to be aware of. Um, in your experience, are people who are in the field interested and influenced by, uh, by historical arguments or, or historical theses or mm. ideas, not just because they think they're intellectually interesting, which is fair enough, of yeah. course, yeah. but because they actually believe that getting a deeper appreciation of history and sociology of science might actually be relevant to them in their day jobs? Um, it's a great question. This is a, the field of the history of science grew out of scientists who then started doing historical work, and it was 
hand in glove. The two fields were seen as belonging together. Often historians of science were in physics departments. They, they would teach intro physics and they would talk to their colleagues. I would say there's probably about three possible positions and different fields have them in different ways. One is people who think it's absolutely irrelevant. Or, if not irrelevant, just nice stories. Like, it's, it's, it's fun to know Einstein anecdotes. Please tell me some that the Einstein anecdotes I know are true. And uh, if not, tell me some new ones that are true that I would prefer to use rather than the ones I don't know. Uh, among chemists, you see a lot of interest in the history of science, but a lot of that interest is, it's kind of entertainment. It's, they, they are interested in the past of their field because they're chemists and they like chemistry and they want to know what these great geniuses did and how we came to know what we know. That's great. I think that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. I'm not so crazy about people who reject the good theory, the, the correct stories in favor of the better stories. Sometimes the better stories are true and sometimes they're not. Um, but if all you're interested in is storytelling, I suppose it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference, but, 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 but it sort of, it makes a difference to me because sure. I feel like there's a, there's a truth and there's a lot of truth about what happened. Um, physicians are also very often interested in the past uh, of their field. There's a lot of interest in the history of medicine. So there's one there. There's a second position, which is the other extreme, which people who think it's threatening. Uh, this was sometimes the case with, uh, with physicists, uh, most prominently in the 90s, there was elements of this, but that historians of science somehow undercut the status of science. They make science look uh, less pristine, less true, less um, pure. And uh, by focusing on things like eugenics and the dirty underbelly of some of the sciences or things like fraud or uh, these fringe theories or when scientists behave not according to the norms they're supposed to behave by, it makes science look bad and it gives uh, aid and comfort to the enemies of science. That's not a very constructive point of view. I don't think, I think most historians, sociologists, and philosophers of science study science because they like science. That's why they do it. They're right. fascinated by it. I am. Uh, I want to know more about how it actually works. Um, it's, it's one of the most important forces in the world today. Like, I would like to know how it operates. Um, it's not, it's a human activity done by humans. It has, therefore, flaws and warts and so on. Sure. Uh, but I can understand why in certain positions some people might find that uh, insulting, even though that's not at all the intention of the field. But that's another position people have. And I think at certain moments that's very prominent. The third, which is I think a minority view in the physical sciences, but is true among biologists, is what you point to, which is um, we could learn something about science by studying its history. We could learn either theories that have been abandoned, but maybe should be resurrected, or certain phenomena that uh, people used to investigate but didn't. There's a philosopher and historian of science in England called Hasek Chang at Cambridge who doing a research on temperature. Like how do we know that water boils at 100 degrees given that we didn't have thermometers that worked until we could calibrate them at 100 degrees. It turns out water can boil at a very wide range of temperatures. Um, right. You can, depending on the whether it's made of glass or metal, whether you shook the water in advance to get right. rid of the... Sure. You can make water boil at 110, 115. Huh. You, you, it's... People used to investigate this question, and then they stopped. Uh, and, well, maybe there's some physics there that we could learn if we went back and actually asked those questions again. So historians can bring up old, unresolved questions and put them in front of them. Or historians can say, Eustace von Liebig ran a really good laboratory and trained lots of students. If you want to found an institute or found a school, here's what successful people have done in the past. Here's what failures have done in the past. And they may not work for you in the future, but you can learn ideas from them. Biologists, are, especially evolutionary biologists, are very interested in some of the debates that philosophers of biology have or historians of biology have about Darwin, Wallace, 
early strands of evolutionary theory that petered out or refuted because there are active debates that going back to the original sources help shed light on, if not the right answer, at least approaches to the right answer. Darwin was a very smart guy and he thought about a lot of these things. So um, maybe we should go back and look and excavate those things. That's, I think, the smaller of the amusing anecdote to I don't like it and it's hostile. There's a smaller set of people who want to learn from the history of science and think it can teach us something about how we should organize science or about how we, how we could organize science but we don't want to. Um, the Soviet Union had a very different way of organizing science than the US did. Um, and their system has now, is now undergoing transformation to look much more like the American system. Globally, that's been true. The Europeans used to have very different ways of organizing science in terms of grants, in terms of tenure, and so on. And everything is being moved into an American model. The American model seems to be good. It's not the only model. And there might be a, a risk of monoculturing and having just one way of doing right. things. So the history of science enables you to hold up things from the past and say, look at that. This was another way of doing it. It had costs and it had benefits. Before you reject it, look at those costs and benefits. And you may decide that the system we have now is a good one. But that's, I think, a function the history of science can serve and often does serve. Um, the people who get more interested in the history of science tend to be older scientists uh, for many reasons. Like they're not, no longer doing as much active work. They're also, their stuff is now historical. Historians come talk to them. They're more reflective. They're more they're mature. More, they're, they're more developed. They're more people. developed, mature, exactly. <laughs> um, and they also tend to be people with a greater voice in science policy. Yeah. So that's one way in which the history of science comes to do something for science policy is when scientists look back and say, well, actually, when we allowed for uh, patents to be given to universities for publicly funded research, that had these consequences. We can try to ameliorate those consequences or not care about them, but we should see that the sociologists have documented that. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it's important that a community of people like me are out there just trying to figure out as much as we can about this enterprise because we're not, science is not going to go away. Uh, it does have enormous consequences, and we would like to know how it operates and uh, possibly improve it and improve our lives in general. And it's possible that history has lessons that let people do that. The historians don't go about prescribing those histories, but we do try to provide the material for those who want to. That's uh, that's a wonderful point to end it on. Do you have anything else that you'd, you'd like to add from our conversation? Is there anything which is that we've elided or that we should have uh, dwelt on perhaps a little bit in, in more detail? Is there anything? I don't think so. We got to Popper. We talked about relativism, which I wasn't sure we were going to get to. Um, no, I think that's it. That's good. Well, I had a great time. Right. Thank you Thank very, you very much, much, Michael. Thank this you. was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with David Canadine, Margaret Jacob, Teo Ruiz, and Andrew Wallace Hadrow. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.